0: Well, being a Christian does not mean we get to escape suffering. In fact, we may even experience more suffering as a result of being a disciple of Christ. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast. The latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. And as always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, nations-minded resources over at our website, Radical.net. In this message from 2 Corinthians, we'll see what a Christian view of suffering should look like. David Platt points us not only to God. God's comfort in suffering, but also to the fact that our suffering gives us an opportunity to extend the comfort to others in their suffering. By God's grace, even the most difficult trials can be used for His glory. Here's David with a sermon titled The Cross in Christian Suffering from 2 Corinthians chapters 1, 4, 11, and 12.
1: If you have His Word, and hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, so feel free to use table of contents if you need to, but if you have walked the journey with us over the last seven months, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians, and so we're going to pick up right where we left off last week at the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, let me invite you to pull out that worship guide that hopefully you received when you came in, that has some notes in it that will guide you our time together this morning. Second Corinthians one is kind of gonna be a home base for us tonight, and then we're gonna be all over the book of Second Corinthians from there. But we'll keep coming back to this first chapter. So you might mark it, kinda hold your place there. It's a pretty humbling, overwhelming thing when I when I pause to think about the lives that are represented across this room particularly when I think about the struggles that I know many of you have walked through in your life, even singing a song like that, and some of the struggles that some of you are walking through right now in your life, I know that every single Sunday, a myriad of people walk into this room with all sorts of struggles, physical struggles ranging from Cancer to chronic pain represented in this room tonight. Relational struggles in marriages, families with friendships. Financial struggles at home, at work. Emotional struggles, everything from loss to loneliness to grief to depression. Personal struggles with sin and temptation. We could go on and on. Just real hurt, real pain represented all across this room at this moment. You think about that multiplied. just over four to five thousand people who gather here today. And there, there are days when we gather, when the text of God's word speaks specifically and pointedly to those sorts of struggles. And tonight is one of those nights. This is one of those nights where the word speaks directly to those of you In this room who are walking through some sort of valley in your life or your family some of you may be altogether new in this particular valley you've found yourself there just recently and your head's kind of spinning you don't know how you got there this is not what you pictured you're not sure what to do from here others of you feel like you've been in the valley for a really really long time and you don't know when it's ever going to end and for that matter this word Speak specifically to those of you who may feel like you're on the mountaintop right now, but you have no idea the depth of the valley that lies right around the bend this week, this month. You and I, none of us has any idea what kind of valley lies ahead. We know that. Some kind of valley at some point does. This is a reality of living in a world of sin and suffering. And the Bible doesn't treat this reality with trite answers, but with revealed truth upon which to stand in the middle of sorrow, in the middle of suffering. So what I want to do tonight is I want us to take the book of 2 Corinthians really from start to finish in a sense and to see what this book has to show us about the cross and Christian suffering. What you have in your notes are three primary truths that just flow from the book of 2 Corinthians when we think about suffering in our lives and suffering in the world around us. I mentioned that over the last seven months we've walk through first Corinthians. And so if you've walked that journey, you know some of the background here, but just to make sure we're all on the same page. Paul, about 2,000 years ago, spent approximately a year and a half in Corinth preaching the gospel and founded the church at Corinth. But then when he left the church at Corinth, many struggles came about in the church at Corinth. A lot of disunity, a lot of problems, a lot of suffering in such a way that Paul would write multiple letters back to the church at Corinth. We've got two of them in their Bible. We know of at least two others. So we've got 1 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians five nine mentions a letter that Paul had written to them before 1 Corinthians. And then when you come to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you see that Paul made what he calls a painful visit to Corinth, and he wrote them another letter after 1 Corinthians before 2 Corinthians. So this is at least the fourth letter that Paul has written to this church. Paul, during this time, has experienced all kinds of suffering in his life. He's writing to a church that experiences, has experienced all kinds of suffering, and he's encouraging them. He's, he's showing them how God strengthens us in the middle of difficult times. How God comforts us in the middle of suffering. It's interesting. There's ten Words for suffering in the Greek language, so the language in which this letter was originally written, and five of those words are used in this book. So we've got this multi-dimensional view of suffering all throughout this book, but it's not just suffering. The word for comfort in the Greek language is used 29 different times in this book, which just to give you a little bit of perspective, that's about exactly the number of times we see the word comfort used in the rest of the New Testament combined together. So there's a clear emphasis in this book on comfort in suffering. In fact, I want us to... Well, let's just start by reading the first seven verses. And when we get down, the first two verses are just kind of introductory. And then verses three to seven, what I want to, to get you to do is every time you see the word comfort or suffering or some cognitive suffering like affliction, you'll see affliction mentioned. So whenever you see comfort, suffering, affliction underline it or, or circle it, mark it, just make some kind of mark, and and hopefully will help to get the tenor of this letter from just reading through the beginning. So start in chapter 1, verse 1. This letter begins, Paul writing, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here it is, circle, underline, mark, every time you see comfort or suffering or affliction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. It's a bit over the top, isn't it? I'm going to comfort you with comfort, as if there's anything else you would comfort me with. It's this emphasis over and over again on comfort in the middle of suffering and, and affliction. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to show you in the middle of your suffering in the middle of your affliction, in the middle of your struggles, in the middle of your hurt, in the middle of your pain tonight, in the middle of your loneliness and grief and despair or depression or whatever you might be walking through in your life, I wanna show you three bedrock truths to stand on. I wanna give you a rock to stand on, in the middle of what seems like sinking sand all around you. And in the process, I pray that God will lodge these three truths deep within your heart So that even if you're not walking through some sort of valley right now, when that valley comes this week and when that valley comes this year, next year, whatever it is, that you never could have imagined that you'll be prepared to stand on that day and that you'll have comfort and strength in the middle of suffering. So first reality that I want to urge you to stand on, is this, we experience suffering in God. I've ordered this really intentionally. This can seem a bit awkward at first glance. We experience suffering in God. I want you to see the truth behind this statement. So part of why Paul is writing this letter is because... As he's experienced suffering in his own life, some of the people who are causing trouble at Corinth have pointed to Paul and his life and said, well, how can he be blessed by God if he's going through all this suffering? And basically they started questioning his apostleship, his leadership in the church, because he was undergoing all of this suffering. It's the same reaction that many people in the church today might have to suffering. To think, well, if somebody is suffering then they're not blessed by God. They're outside of God's blessing if they're suffering. Now, I want to make some careful distinctions here because the reality is we suffer in this world for different reasons. And one of the reasons we suffer in this world is because of sin in our lives. When we sin, we suffer. Period. When we, you and I, rebel against God, turn from God's way to our own way, then pain and hurt are sure to follow. Yes, our way may seem satisfying for a time, but it will not be satisfying for all time. Guaranteed. You mark it down. You turn from God's word and God's ways for your life, then you will find yourself traveling on a road that will lead to suffering. And if you do not turn to God from that road, then that road will lead to eternal, everlasting suffering. This is where I want to urge every single person in this room tonight not to travel that road. I know that there are men and women students in this room tonight who are suffering right now as a result of sin in your life. You're experiencing the pain of choosing your own path, and my prayer is that you would see and hear the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of God towards you, and bringing here you here to this room tonight to hear this warning. The path you are on leads to pain; ultimately, it leads to eternal pain. So, by the grace of God, turn from that path and trust in the God who desires to forgive you of all your sin and keep you from the pain that you are headed toward. This is the great news of the gospel. Some of you are here tonight, and you're not Christians. Maybe you've thought for a while about maybe becoming a Christian. I want to urge you to let tonight be the night. And here's why. The good news is we're talking about suffering, even suffering as a result of sin at this moment the beauty is, right where you're sitting, God loves you. He loves you so much that He has sent His Son to pay the price for your sin, to take the suffering you are due for sin upon Himself. He has endured the penalty that is due your sin. He has died for you. Not only has He died for you and your sin. He's risen from the dead in victory over sin and suffering and death so that you tonight in your heart might be able to turn from yourself and your sin and trust in his love for you and know that all of your sins are completely forgiven. You are restored to God forever and ever, never to fear eternal suffering again. That's good news that we pray you will receive tonight. Let tonight be the night where you turn on that road that leads to everlasting death to the one who alone can give you everlasting life. And if you are a Christian here tonight and you're wandering from God into sin in small ways, in big ways, let this be a wake-up call for you tonight. To stop wandering on a road that you know, you know does not lead to satisfaction. It leads away from satisfaction in God. Be reminded tonight that you've been saved from sin and its effects. So stop running towards sin and all its effects. You've been freed from this. Turn back to God. And be careful. So we're about to talk about suffering that is not a direct result of sin in our lives. So in 2 Corinthians, when Paul's talking about suffering, he's not talking about suffering that comes as a result of sin in his life. He's talking about suffering that actually comes as a result of obedience in his life, which we'll get to in just a second. But I want to make sure to point this out. If you are suffering as a result of sin in your life, then the answer, the the exhortation for you tonight is simple. Repent. 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 The last thing I want to do is comfort you as you're running away from God. I want to warn you as you're running away from God. Repent. So some of you are walking through a marital struggle because of sin in your life, in your heart. And so the the call for you tonight is to repent. Turn from God. Not turn from God. Turn to God from yourself and your sin. So hear that warning. (laughs) I don't want to comfort you in in. Sin tonight. But at the same time, so now that's coming back to why Paul wrote this letter. At the same time, I don't want to give you the impression, so I was just talking to non-Christians, saying, come to Christ. I don't want to give you the impression that if you come to Christ, then you will never suffer again. You'll be free from suffering. When the reality is, coming to Christ does not in any way mean freedom from suffering in this world. Certainly from the suffering we were just talking about that comes as a result of sin. But we still live in a world of sin and suffering. And there, there is, in so many ways, in our culture, even our church culture, just no room for this kind of mindset. We think, well, suffering is evidence of the displeasure of God. When the reality is, the Bible tells us at many points that suffering can be evidence of the pleasure of God. You think about Job. You think about Jeremiah. These are men who suffered not because of their disobedience to God, but because of their obedience to God. And so I don't want you to buy into this theology that is alive and well today, made popular by guys like Joel Osteen, but subtly preached today by churches even across the city who say that if you follow God, everything will go well for you. It's not always as explicit as you will experience your best life now. Every day will be a Friday and you will become a better you. But this idea that you have health and possessions and wealth and prosperity if you have faith. That theology is alive and well across our culture, across many cultures in the world. In the name of Christianity. And it's not true. And I know it's not true because the Bible teaches it's not true. Paul here is talking about the kind of pain and hurt and trouble and suffering that we experience in the process of pursuing God. And we need to learn this early on in our faith so that we not, will not be rocked and shocked when we experience suffering in the process of obeying God. I was looking back this morning at Acts chapter 14, and just how Paul, as he's starting these churches in the New Testament, some of his first exhortations to them, he says to those baby Christians, those new Christians in Acts chapter 14, he says, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. This is a part of initial discipleship. They needed to know from the very beginning that tribulation was coming. We need to know that. So that when, when things go awry around us, we don't think, where's God? And our faith just goes out the window. We need to realize from the very beginning, tribulation's coming. Suffering is a reality for the Christian. So don't be surprised when you suffer, even as you obey God. Don't think that suffering is always a picture of displeasure of God. Sometimes suffering is intended as a picture of the pleasure of God to remind us of his providence over us which leads to okay this is what i want us to see tonight when i say we experience suffering in god i mean for us to know that god is sovereign over all suffering that god is in control over all suffering that suffering is never out of control that it's always ultimately under sovereign control so ladies and gentlemen mark this down we are not the products of fate or chance and Clearly, we are not in control of everything that goes on in our lives. And by the way, that's a really good thing. It's a good thing that fallen human beings who have turned away from God are not ultimately in control. It's a good thing to know that there is a good and wise and loving and gracious and merciful and powerful God who is in heaven, and he is in control of all things. Even the hardest things and the worst things that we find ourselves walking through. Let me show you this over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So we'll come back to chapter 1 in a minute, but turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 at the end of this letter where Paul starts talking about some visions and revelations that he received from God that Paul admits were, were so great that it almost, he was almost tempted to become conceited because of what God had shown him. And so listen to what he says in verse 7. The beginning of this chapter, he talks about these visions and revelations that God has shown him, but then In verse seven, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You hear that? Like We, we don't know exactly what this thorn in the flesh was. Likelihood, maybe, is that it was some sort of physical malady, physical pain, but we're not sure exactly. What we are sure of is that God was sovereign over Paul having this. Did you see the language in verse 7? He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A thorn was given me. Which begs the question, who gave it? And some might say Satan did. And yes, Satan's mentioned in this passage. The thorn is described as a messenger of Satan. But look at what Paul's doing. He's praying to God and he's saying, God, please take this away. Paul knows to so follow this. This is so key. Paul knows that Satan is not ultimately sovereign over this thorn. God is. Paul knows that the only way this thorn is going away is if God takes it away. And the only reason this thorn is staying is because God is keeping it there for a purpose. So don't tell Paul that every day is a Friday and that this is his best life now. Austin says to those who struggle with Alzheimer's, maybe Alzheimer's disease runs in your family genes, but don't succumb to it. Instead, say every day, my mind is alert. I have clarity of thought. I have a good memory. Every cell in my body is increasing and getting healthier. If you'll raise up in your authority, you can be the one to put a stop to the negative things in your family line. Start boldly declaring, God is restoring health unto me. I am getting better every day in every way. That is bogus. Can you imagine saying that to Paul? Paul, you just tell yourself, my mind is alert. Every cell in my body increasing and getting healthier. I'm getting better every day in every way. No, Paul's got a thorn in his flesh. And God's the one who put it there. And he put it there by divine design. And there's a mystery behind that design. We don't always know why God, in His sovereign wisdom and sovereign love, ordains thorns in the flesh, ordains sufferings we undergo. But that doesn't mean we throw out His sovereignty in the process. What it means is we need to realize this, and this applies to all suffering. Follow this in your notes. Satan intends every type of suffering to sabotage us. There is no question that Satan intended this thorn to sabotage Paul's faith and there is no question in my mind that Satan is intending suffering to sabotage faith in lives right now all across this room Satan is using cancer to get some of you to question the power of God He's using emotional emptiness in some of your lives to get you to lose hope in the love of God. He's using pain in your life in different ways to steal away your pleasure in God. He's working toward that end in suffering all across the street. But there's another side to this story. Satan intending every type of suffering to sabotage us, but God ordains every type of suffering to sanctify us. So Satan has something destructive he wants to accomplish in your suffering. But God has something glorious he desires to accomplish in your suffering. When you walk through suffering, you're in the middle of this spiritual battle. And I want to urge you in the middle of that battle not to lose sight of the sovereignty of God. To know that it's right, it's okay, it's good even, to plead for suffering to go away. So Paul pleaded over and over and over again for this thorn to be taken from him. So it's okay to plead for cancer to go away. It's okay to plead for the pain to go away. It's good and right to plead for the hurt to go away. But to know in the middle of it, no matter what happens, no matter how long the suffering stays, that God is sovereign over it. And he's working in it for your good. He's working all things together for your good. That's a guarantee. It's all going to come together for your good. And the only reason that's a guarantee is because God is sovereign over all of it in the first place. Not only is he sovereign over all suffering, he keep going. He's familiar with all suffering. So you go back to chapter 1. You go back to chapter 1 and Paul starts this This. Letter on suffering, in verse 3, by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of who? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, don't miss this. Even as you consider the sovereignty of God over us, do not equate that with the presence of God being distant from us. As if he's out here impersonally in the universe ruling over everything with no regard to the details of our lives and the emotions and the hurt and the pain that we feel. No, our God is not distant from us. Our God is literally with us in our suffering. The Lord Jesus Christ God in the flesh, the miracle of the incarnation. God in the flesh identifying with human weakness, human frailty, human pain. Are you hurting? He was hurt. Are you broken? He was broken. You feel betrayed. He, he's been betrayed. Are you, are you grieving. He grieved. Are you lonely. He was lonely. He was mocked and beaten, scourged, spat upon, his face, nailed to a cross. All of this in the the unimaginable depth of spiritual, relational, physical pain combined into one. He's familiar with all suffering. He knows what it is like to cry out. Jesus knows what it's like to cry out, my God, my God, why? So... Hear this good news tonight, that God of the universe is familiar with you in your suffering. He sees your struggles. He hears your cries, and he knows your pain. He's familiar with all suffering, and he's the source of all compassion in it. I love this next phrase in 2 Corinthians one three. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of mercies. Literally, the language is God is the originator of compassion. He's the Father of mercies from whom compassion, all compassion flows. So it's this picture of compassion flowing from the throne of God toward you and your heart and your suffering. He's the source of all compassion and He's sufficient for all comfort. I've already Mention how this word comfort is used 29 different times in this book. And it's a beautiful word in the language of the New Testament. In the Greek language, it literally means comfort, to come alongside and help. It's the same word that we see used to describe the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 16. He's our comforter. The way I love, I love how Paul, in verse 3 and 4, stresses how he's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. All comfort, all our affliction, any Affliction. Paul's stressing here. The Bible says that God is sufficient to provide all comfort in all situations, any situation. Think about what this means. He has all comfort. That means there's no one else that can provide what God does. All comfort comes from Him. That pretty much covers it. All comfort comes from Him. God gives all Comfort In all situations, there is no situation, absolutely no situation that you will ever face in your life that is beyond the comfort that comes from God. That's good news. You imagine the worst. The worst you can imagine, if you would. And know this, even the worst, God, in His comfort, will show Himself sufficient for it. All comfort in all situations. God's comfort always outweighs our suffering. That's, that's, that's a rock to stand on. His comfort always outweighs, always, always outweighs our suffering. That's what what Paul says right after this in verses 8 and 9. We stopped in verse 7, but keep going. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This burden, this despair that we experienced, drove us to rely not on ourselves, but on God. Because He's sufficient for us. Same thing we saw in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. How shall we see and know and experience the sufficiency of God if everything always goes easy for us? It's in the midst of despair. It's in the face of death. It's in this cauldron of hurt and pain that we experience the comfort of God and his sufficiency for every situation. This is what I mean by we experience suffering in God, with God, for good. Now, follow this. It's when we experience suffering in God that we receive comfort from God. But that's not the end of the story. Because the purpose of suffering goes beyond ourselves. Second truth here, we experience suffering in God so that we can extend comfort from God. So, this is simple. Paul established that when he suffers, God comforts him. Yet he knows that the purpose of God's comfort in his life is not just his comfort. It's not intended to stop with him, but to spread through him. Blessed be, verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that, purpose clause, so that. Paul, why does God comfort us in our affliction? So that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, we share with others not only the sufferings of Christ, but the comfort of Christ. Verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. It's for you. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. you hearing this. Paul says, I embrace suffering because I know that as I experience comfort, when I do, I'll be able to pass that on to others. This is the theme that runs throughout this letter. It's in your notes. We're comforted for others' sake. Throughout this letter, Paul emphasizes how God ordained suffering in his life and the comfort that comes in it to then overflow through his life and the lives of others. And that is a radical way to look at suffering in our culture. It is so tempting, so easy for us to become self-centered in our suffering. But hear the word of God urging us to not center on ourselves in Suffering. What if we began to believe that whatever happens to us in our lives is, yes, ordained by God for our good, but what if we also believe that whatever happens to us in our lives, God also ordains for others' good around us? Now, this is so different from the American individualistic cultural mindset that says everything centers on us. This mindset that we buy into, even as Christians, where so much of our suffering revolves around us as individuals, we ask the question, what is God teaching me through this? And it's not that that's a bad question. That's a good question. But that's not the only question. As if the God of the universe is only focused on you. What if God is working in your life in a way that is intended to affect people around you for their good? What if he's not just teaching you? What if he's teaching them in the process? That's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying the more suffering I experience, the more comfort I experience, and as a result, the more comfort I'm able to give to others. This is a radically God-centered, people-loving perspective on suffering. What if God does not comfort us merely to make us comfortable? What if God comforts us to make us comforters? This is, after all, what it means to be the church, right? We experience suffering in God. We receive comfort from God so that we might show the love of Christ to each other in the church. It's what it means to be the church. T- turn over to 2 Corinthians 7. Let me show you how this played out here in Paul's life and the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me give you a picture here. Verse verse 5, where we see similar language that we've read in chapter 1. Listen listen to it. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Paul says, even when we came into Macedonia, he's talking about his suffering. Our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear with them. So he's suffering. But God, verse 6, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Now, now follow this. There's a little background here. So Paul had sent Titus to the church at Corinth to comfort the church at Corinth. Titus went to comfort the church at Corinth. While Titus was there, he was comforted by the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth sent Titus back to Paul, came to Paul in the middle of suffering, and Titus, who had been comforted by Corinth, now comforted Paul, who had sent Titus to Corinth for Corinth's comfort. It's like this whole circle of comfort going on here. Like I'm reading this. and I'm just expecting Michael W. Smith to just come into the background and us to hold hands and start singing Friends Are Friends forever. Tear up. If you haven't been around the church for the last couple of decades, then that will make no sense to you. Uh, and... <laughs> never mind, I won't say what I was thinking, but you're you're okay. Like, don't feel like you've missed something important in your life. <laughs> but this is a reality. God has designed His church to care for each other's hurts. There is not one person in this room tonight whom God intends to suffer alone. And there's not one person in this room whom God intends His comfort to center on and stop with. You come back to, come back to chapter one and you hear Paul saying to the church at Corinth, you also must help us by prayer. And in verse 11, you must also help us by prayer. And that word help us there. There's one word in the Greek. It's actually a mixture of three English words. I love this. That that word, it's translated help us there is really a mixture of three English words. With, under, and work. This help that he's asking for. With, under, and work. And it's a beautiful word picture in the Greek language of, of a people walking with each other under the burdens of this life, working together on mission. Like, what a beautiful picture of the church. We're with each other, under the burdens of this life working together on mission in this world of sin and suffering sin help us there are men and women in this room who have experienced the comfort of god in the middle of cancer and it's at this point i i want to remind you that that comfort was not intended to stop with you. There are men and women across this room who have walked, who are walking through all sorts of deep pain and deep hurt. And I want to remind you that the sufficiency you have seen in the sovereignty of God is not for your eyes only. It's intended for you to point others to, to show others. We are comforted so that we might show the love of Christ to each other in the church. And then keep going here, we're comforted that we might spread the love of Christ to others in the world. So it doesn't stop in a church, it just goes out in the world. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 4 here. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7. I was t- assigned to preach this text at a conference of the Gospel Coalition a few months ago and I was familiar with this text. I've referenced it at different points but I'd, I'd never studied it like I did in preparation for that sermon. And I was struck in a profound way by this by this picture of why Paul was suffering in this text. So look at it with me. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7. He's talking about his weakness and suffering. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So Paul's describing here the suffering, just he's experienced, just like he did in chapter 1. As sharing in the sufferings of Christ, he's carrying in his body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in him. Some of you might read that and think, what's that about? What does that mean? There's a lot of things that means, but one of the things that means is that Paul does not believe in a healthy, wealthy Savior who experienced prosperity in this world. Paul believed in a suffering, wounded Savior who experienced persecution in this world, so he doesn't equate becoming more like Christ with things getting easier in the world. He knows that becoming more like Christ means things getting a lot harder in this world. And I want you to think about why things are getting harder for him. Why are things getting harder for Paul? Why is he undergoing suffering? And the answer is, because he's spreading the gospel in the world around him. He's proclaiming the gospel everywhere he goes. That's why he's being afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down. We see a few chapters later in chapter 11, a passage we read just a few weeks ago when we were looking at something in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, I've been imprisoned and beaten, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Paul's experienced all this suffering in his life. Why? It's because he's given his life to proclaiming the gospel. Paul's not experiencing this suffering because sitting he's sitting on the couch watching TV and coasting through casual, comfortable, cultural Christianity attending church and going on with his life in the way that everybody else does in the culture around him. That's not why he's experiencing this suffering that he's talking about. He's experiencing this suffering because he's given his life to proclaim the gospel. And the more you do that, the harder your life will get in this world. So you keep reading here. This is exactly what he says in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Verse 15, listen to this. For it is all for your sake. It's all for your sake. So that his grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. You hear that? Verse 15, it's all for your sake. What's all? What's, what's for your sake? All this suffering, all this pain, all these trials. Paul says, they're for your sake, so that the grace of God might extend to more and more and more people and resound to the glory of God among more and more and more people. Paul says, this is why I'm suffering, so the grace of God might be all the more clear to more and more people. It's why it looks like I'm being given over to death, so the life of Christ might be clear in me. So follow this. Step back for a second. This is so huge in understanding the purpose of suffering and the place of suffering in the Christian's life. Think about it. How has God most clearly shown his character, his love to this world? He's most clearly shown his character, his love. How? Through a suffering servant. Through Jesus, through the sacrifice of his son on a cross. This is the picture God has given us. Of his character, his love in the world. So then, follow that up. How is God going to show this Jesus, this suffering servant, his love and his character, his sacrificial love, how he's going to show that to the world today, in 2013. He's, he's not going to do it through luxurious lives filled with health, wealth, and prosperity. No, that will not show the world a clear picture of Christ and it won't impress those in the world who are without Christ. This world is not impressed. When they see a bunch of Christians living it up with all the pleasures and possessions this world has to offer and going to worship God on Sundays. If that's all they see in the church, then the world will say, I'll have none of it. I can have the same pleasures and same possessions in this world, and I don't have to go anywhere on Sundays. I can just play more golf, go to the lake, or do whatever. The world is not impressed, Christian, by healthy, wealthy people who choose to tack on Jesus at the beginning of the week. Well, let me tell you what the world's impressed. What gets the attention of the world? What gets the attention of the world is when people give away the possessions of this world. When people forsake the pleasures of this world. When people lose their health and lose their wealth. When pain comes, when cancer strikes, when a spouse dies, and people lose that which is most valuable to them in this world, and in the middle of it all, they cry out, God is good. God is sufficient. God is sovereign, and God is satisfying. And you take away the most precious things this world offers, and Christ will be enough for me. That gets the attention of the world. And you know what gets their attention even more? When you and I give our lives to spreading this gospel, knowing that it may mean damage to our reputation, knowing that it may mean we get passed over for that promotion, knowing that it may mean ministry in a difficult area of this city are moving to a dangerous part of the world. But we go anyway. We go willingly, knowing it's not going to be easy, knowing that suffering is going to come. We go anyway. Why? Because we know. We know that though we will be afflicted, we will not be crushed. Though we will be perplexed, we will not despair. Though we will be persecuted, we will not be forsaken. And though we will be struck down, we will not be destroyed. We will carry in our body the suffering, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might be clear in us. We embrace suffering, knowing that we'll receive comfort, and our comfort will not just be for our sake, it'll be for others' sake, that we might spread the love of Christ, the suffering Savior, in the world around us. Are we willing to embrace suffering like that? Not to seek out suffering. Not to seek out suffering, but to spread the gospel knowing that it will not be easy in this world when we give our lives to that. But in the process, God will show Christ clearly through suffering we experience, comfort we receive in our lives. God, create this kind of culture when it comes to suffering in this church. May we not be a people who run from danger in this world, who run from suffering in this world to health and wealth and prosperity and what's easy and what's comfortable for us and miss out on the opportunities we have. We have to show the death and life of Jesus to the world around us. It's not waste our suffering. It's what it means to be the church. We're a fellowship of brothers and sisters who hurt. We've got real hurt and real pain from life in general and then from life on mission together in the world. So we hurt, but we hurt with hope. That's the whole point of these passages in 2nd Corinthians. We're a fellowship of brothers and sisters who in our suffering are learning to rely on God, learning to hope in God, even in the face of death, because we know that that's what's most important in life. John Piper has helped us in rethinking the way we describe what we call cancer survivors in our culture, this term that we use to describe those who face cancer and live through it. And I appreciate what that term means in some senses, but like Piper, I fear that it runs the danger of missing the point. The way we use this term inevitably leads to the idea that if you get cancer and you live, then you have won. You've won the battle with cancer. But if you die, you get cancer and you die, then you lose. You've lost the battle with cancer. Based on what we're seeing in God's Word, I want to clearly say that that is not accurate. Because beating cancer is not about staying alive. It's what the world says, but it's not true. If you live through cancer, and yet you are not putting all your faith and all your hope and all your trust in God, then you have not won anything. Your hope is still in the things of this world. Your trust is still in yourself and you haven't won a thing at all. In fact, I would say that cancer has won because you're all the more deeply convinced now that you can face this life on your own. On the other hand, you face cancer and in the middle of it, you hold fast and firm to the hope you have in God, to the faithfulness you have seen in God, to the mercy you receive from God, to the strength you find in God, then you win. And at that point, it doesn't matter if you live or die, because when your hope is in God and your trust is in God and your life is in God, then you have nothing to fear. Live or die, it doesn't matter. This is why. When I've gone to see members of this faith family in their homes facing death due to cancer, I've seen hope. When I've asked them how they feel and they look at me and in different ways, they say, I'm ready to be with God. That's a cancer survivor. When you find out you've got fluid around your lungs, something strange in your stomach and you say, my hope is in God. When you find out you have a severe case of melanoma with a dismal prognosis, you say, my hope is not in my odds. My hope is in my God. When hospice is brought in and you sit there in a quiet home struggling to breathe, yet when you breathe, you're saying, my hope is in God. Until that moment when breath is no more and your last thought is, my hope is in God. That is the win. That's eternal win. Which leads to the last reality. In our suffering, we experience, we embrace even suffering in God, knowing He's sovereign over it, sufficient in it. And we extend comfort from God all to the end that we exult in the glory of God. We exult, meaning we rejoice. Paul says in Romans, we exult in our suffering. How is that possible? Some of you are thinking, okay, this is where things go too far. Dave, you're living in an imaginary world. Do you think it's possible to rejoice in what I'm walking through? To rejoice in hardship, to rejoice in pain, to rejoice in loss, to rejoice in grief, to rejoice in suffering. And I want to be really clear here. I'm not talking about a trite. Glib, happy-go-lucky approach to pain and hurt and suffering in this world as if it's not painful and as if it doesn't hurt. There's talked about real deep pain and real deep hurt. We grieve at loss. We ache in agony. We have questions. We struggle with sovereign mysteries. This is not easy truths. We struggle with sovereign mysteries. It's not easy. But do you remember back in chapter one, chapter one, verse eight, when Paul said, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is the apostle Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament, greatest missionary who ever lived, who's saying, I despaired of life. He said over in Philippians 1, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. He says here, I feel like I feel like I could go there any minute. I've received the sentence of death. But, verse 9, but, but, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Oh, follow this. This is glorious. Paul says, I despaired of life itself. The language is literally, I couldn't see a way out. There was no exit. Death impending. But then I looked up in the face of impending death and I realized I'm following the God who raises the dead. That's a good moment. That's reason to exult. How do we rejoice in God when we despair of life itself? We rejoice in God because we know that he is our victory. Do you realize this, Christian? Do you realize this hurting Christian in your pain and in your despair? Do you realize that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dead three days. Power of God bringing him to life out of a tomb. The same power that raised him from the dead is the same power that is in you at this moment. Oh, what confidence, what reason to rejoice. This This means there is nothing, there is nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing that you will face in this life that you do not ultimately have power to overcome. I don't know what's coming this week or this year, next year for you or me, but I do know this, the power of him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you. And no matter what comes, you will have Power to experience victory. He's our victory. He's our deliverer. Verse ten says he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again three times. Deliverance, deliverance. Now, see here: temporary deliverance and ultimate deliverance. So, in the middle of trial in this world, believe, know that God has power to deliver you. Don't doubt that God has power to deliver you. Which is hard to do when the deliverance isn't coming like you hope for. How you, it's hard to keep faith in the power of God to deliver when that deliverance isn't coming in the way you're pleading for it to come. When cancer continues, it's, it's easy to forget that God has power over cancer. When struggle in this relationship with that area of life continues, it's easy to forget that God has power to heal and restore and redeem. Don't stop this exhortation in the middle of, particularly if you've been in a valley for a long time. Don't stop believing that God has all power to deliver while also believing that God has all wisdom regarding when and how to bring about that deliverance. I've shared a quote before from James Montgomery Boyce, famous Presbyterian pastor up in Philadelphia, who was diagnosed with liver cancer. After he received this diagnosis, he spoke to the, his church, and this is what he said. He told them, should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is, is that the God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history... And you say where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ, and it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross though he could have. Jesus said, "Don't you think I could call down from my father 10 legions of angels for my defense?" But he didn't do that. And yet that's where God is most glorified. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if the if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. God is not only the one who's in charge, God is also good. Everything he does is good. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. Boyce died eight weeks after he said this. You say, well, how is that good? It's good in the same way that it was good that God did not deliver Jesus from the cross. He died, not because God had no power, but because God had all power to raise him from the dead. And Boyce died, not because God had no power, but knowing that God had all power to raise him from the dead. Just like many brothers and sisters who once sat in this room with us, husbands and wives and moms and dads and children have died. Not because God had no power. But knowing that God had power to raise them from the dead. Exalt people of God. He will deliver us. He will deliver us. He's our victory. He's our deliverer. And He is our reward. See in all of this. Pray. See in all of this. A God-centered perspective of suffering. If in our suffering... All we're asking is, when are my circumstances going to change? Then we will miss the purpose that God has in our suffering. And we'll never have stability in this world because our sense of stability will sway back and forth based on the situations and circumstances we find ourselves in. But our goal is not ultimately a change of circumstances. Our goal ultimately is the glory of God. More than we need our circumstances to change, we need God. So the goal is not feeling better. The goal is knowing God. The goal is not easier life. The goal is glorifying God. Because this is where deepest satisfaction is found. This is where eternal joy is found. This is where the rock to stand on is found. Because when this is your goal, then then no matter what happens in this life, everything is going to work together for the good of those who love Him and called according to His purpose. What's His purpose? His purpose is us being conformed in the image of Christ to the glory of His name. So see how all this comes full circle. This is why He says in verse 10, On Him we have set our hope. He's our hope. Our hope's not in better life in easier circumstances. Our hope's in God. See how suffering comes full circle. God uses suffering for our sake. It's just reviewing what we've seen. As we experience suffering in God, He shows His sovereignty. He shows His sufficiency, His compassion, His comfort in ways that we would never see otherwise. God uses suffering for our sake. But not just for our sake. God uses suffering for others' sake. For when we receive the comfort of God in our suffering, we talked about we're uniquely able to show the love of Christ to others in the church, spread the love of Christ to others in the world. And in this way, So follow this to its end. God uses suffering for His sake. When God comforts us and we become conduits of His comfort to others, the result is He's glorified as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Don't you long for men and women across Birmingham right now who are without Christ to know the hope that is found in God. And the strength that's found in God. The rock that's found in God. Don't you want men and women around the world who are giving themselves over over to false gods who have no hope for them in this life? Don't you want them to know that there's a God who loves them? And in the middle of this world of hurt and pain, has sent his son to pay the price for sin, has conquered sin and death, so that they might know him and enjoy him forever and ever. God uses suffering for our sake, others' sake, ultimately for his sake. And in all these ways, suffering becomes well worth it. Let's close in Second Corinthians four, verses sixteen through eighteen. I can't think of any b- better concluding words as we contemplate suffering than these. Second Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. But the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Oh, Mark, Stout, Hold on to this as we close. All suffering, all suffering for the Christian is light and temporary. All suffering for the Christian. Now that's key. This is, Please hear me, this is not true for the non-Christian. If you're not a Christian, then you do not at this moment have this guarantee. You may have cancer, you may undergo pain, you may experience suffering in all kinds of ways, yet if you die in sin apart from God, your destiny, like we talked about, will be one of eternal, everlasting Suffering, eternity given over to sin and all of its effects. So I urge you that tonight be the night where you turn from your sin and yourself and you trust in Christ as your Savior. This is not religious game here. This is eternal reality we're talking about. Turn from your sin, trust in Christ, and when you do, for all who have, You know, don't forget this. All suffering now in your life is light and temporary in perspective. And I know that's hard to see when it feels so heavy. But see it in light of eternity. One day, soon, relatively very soon. One day soon, every single sorrow in this room will cease. Every single hurt in this room will stop. Every single struggle will desist. Every single disease will disappear. Every single ounce of grief will be gone. And God himself will wipe away the tears from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain for the old will have gone and the new will have come. He's our reward. So never forget this. Don't forget. Remember this. All suffering for the Christian is light and temporary because coming glory for the Christian is vast and eternal. Never ending. thanks
0: for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to download today's sermon, watch the video, or even download the free discussion questions that accompany every sermon that you can use in your small group or even Bible study settings, you can do that and more at our website. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us there at Radical.net.